Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We sing about God's providence and care in the midst of suffering as we turn this morning to what is one of the darkest chapters in the Bible. If you're just joining us today, we've been working through the book of Judges and we've arrived now at the final chapters of this book where the author of Judges is holding up two stories as a mirror for Israel to see themselves in the depth of their sin while they live with no king in the land and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Last week we looked at the first of these stories, which was almost comical in its moral tragedy, as Micah and the tribe of Dan attempted to worship the Lord, gain an inheritance, but they did so by disobeying and dishonoring God at every turn. This week we turn to the second story, in which the moral confusion of this period leads to deep wickedness and suffering. Some might even wonder, with all the you know, beautiful passages in Scripture, I mean, we could be in Philippians or, or Romans, why do we have to look at a story like this in our time together? But this passage is included in God's Word for good reason, as I hope we'll see this morning. So we're turning to Judges 19, and I want to read just the, the first three verses of, of Judges 19, and then we'll turn to uh, more of the action at the end of this chapter and into chapter 20. Let's start at the beginning of Judges 19. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. She went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. Now what follows in the next verses is an interplay of hospitality as uh, the, the girl's father hosts him for five days and encourages him to stay, but eventually they leave on their journey, and not wanting to stay in a Canaanite city for fear of danger, they press on to the Israelite city of Gibeah. But no one takes them in, and they're camping out in the town square until a man from Ephraim, who's a stranger there, welcomes them into his home. And we're going to pick up the action at verse 22 as they're in the home of this man of Ephraim who's living in Gibeah. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do to them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. 
And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. Her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let's be going. There was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. And the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, Tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent. None of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. We will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people, that when they come they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. The Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. That's where we're going to stop in our reading this morning. Let's pray. God, this is a dark chapter in your word. And yet I pray that you would use it to draw our hearts to you this morning. In Christ's name, amen. This week as I watched Vladimir Putin's troops launch an unprovoked invasion, killing hundreds, forcing thousands to flee their homes, I was struck by the common thread between this week's events and this morning's passage. Both remind us that when the wicked hold sway, the vulnerable suffer deeply. We see it in individual stories that play out in families and abuse. We see it in institutional examples such as sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. We see it in national stories that have played out in Nero's Rome and Hitler's Germany Pol Pot's Cambodia, and what many of our own refugee families have personally experienced. In other words, Judges 19 fits right in 
with what we know of evil. And Scripture does not whitewash the situation, but presents it with all honesty and all of its ugliness as the author drives home his main point. When neither righteous leaders nor moral boundaries exist, wickedness and suffering abound. Neither righteous leaders nor moral boundaries exist. Wickedness and deep suffering abound. Now, when I, as we look at this passage, I want us to see three things. I want us to look at the breadth of sin in Israel, at the depth of the sin in Israel, and at the question of God's presence amidst the sin of Israel. So let's begin by looking at the breadth of sin in Israel. As with last week, the moral chaos of the day seeps its way into the actions of every character in this story. The narrative begins when the Levite's concubine is unfaithful to him and returns home. Of course, even the fact that we're talking about a concubine is a departure from God's will and plan for marriage. Remember that concubines were additional partners a man might take with fewer rights and fewer guarantees for their children, but still bound by vows in a relationship similar to marriage, such that the Levite is called her husband, and the father of the woman is called his father-in-law. And this concubine is unfaithful to her husband. We don't know whether that's through adultery or simply by leaving and going home. The Levite appears at first to be a loving husband. He goes to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. But that impression of kindness won't last long. After five days of hospitality from his father-in-law, the Levite heads for home. And as evening approaches on their journey, the Levite is concerned that they might not be treated well in a Canaanite city. So they press forward to Gibeah in Benjamin's territory, only to find that in this Israelite town, no one will take them in. Here we have to remember the importance of hospitality in the ancient world. Remember, there were no hotels to stay in. There was no police force for protection. And so it was the expected duty of every citizen to take in those who came to town. God's law, in fact, told Israel to treat every sojourner with kindness, remembering that they themselves were sojourners from Egypt. Egypt. And if they were to treat every sojourner with kindness, how much more a fellow Israelite? Finally, a man from Ephraim, who's not from that place, takes the Levite and his company in and appears again to be a good moral example, but that also fades quickly. It turns out that Gibeah's lack of hospitality is the least of their wickedness as they turn their violent passions against these visitors. And yet, in horror, we see the old man of Ephraim expose, even offer the more vulnerable in his house, his daughter and the concubine, to abuse. And we see the Levite's true colors come out. As to protect himself, he literally throws his concubine to the violent men. I think the full depth of the callousness of his selfish wickedness is exposed in verses 27 and 28, where he is said to rise up in the morning. Apparently, he enjoyed a night's sleep while this woman was being violently killed. And finding her on the doorstep, he tells her, let's get up and get going. I want you to notice that the text stops calling him her husband and starts calling him her master here. I think it's a subtle but pointed critique of his abomination. 
when he discovers that she is dead, this man cuts her body up and sends it in pieces throughout all Israel. Some see this as an act of presenting evidence so that his story will be believed. Others view it as a self-motivated move to gain emotional support for his position. Either way, it certainly shocks all of Israel. But the Levite caps his performance in verse 5 of chapter 20 by deceitfully summarizing the story in a way that makes himself appear the victim. As he says, the leaders of Gibeah meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she's dead. Of course, completely whitewashing any responsibility he had in the situation. Given Israel's horror, we would expect swift justice to come, only to find out that then the entire tribe of Benjamin rises up to defend Gibeah. And so by the time we come to the end of our reading, we are struck by the breadth of Israel's sin which touches virtually every character we meet. Now it's important to understand, by pointing out everyone's sin in the story, I am not saying that each sin was equal. I am not trying to level responsibility for the horror of what's happened here. Rather, I'm trying to point out what I think the text is pointing out. And that is this, that widespread moral chaos in a society where each person does whatever seems right to them in the moment, in their own eyes, always opens the door for ugly evil at the hands of those who have power and grievous suffering to the vulnerable. This is the breadth of Israel's sin that touches every character. But the text also talks about the depth of Israel's sin, and I want us to see that next. This text describes the depth of Israel's sin in multiple ways. It comes out first in Gibeah's desire for homosexual abuse. Now, I want to be very clear here. It may be that some here today or some who are listening struggle with sexual desire for those of the same gender. And if so, you need to know that Scripture does not describe you as a worse person for struggling with sexual desire for the same gender as opposed to other sins. In 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, those who struggle with greed as well as theft, idolatry as well as murder, same sexual sins as well as other sexual sins are all presented as sinners in equal need of Jesus with equal hope of both salvation and sanctification through faith in Christ. And yet, we know ourselves that even all of our own sins, though they make us equally guilty before God, are not equally heinous or egregious. Theft is a greater sin as far as what it deserves in punishment and the law than greed. Murder is a more egregious sin than anger. And in the same way, Genesis 19 and Leviticus 18.22 and Romans 1.26 all mark same sexual sin as more heinous before God because it is contrary to God's law and created order. And in that biblical context, we need to see Judges 19 and read it as Israel is being described as descending to an increasing depth of sin against God's law and God's creation. And then, of course, the depth of Israel's sin is multiplied and magnified because of Gibeah's complete, 
unrestrained pursuit of desire in violation of another human being. The text literally says that the men of the city threw themselves at the door, demanding to have the man. The depth of Israel's sin, of course, also comes out in the abuse of the vulnerable that is actually committed. As the old man offers his daughter, then the Levite actually gives his concubine, and the men of Gibeah carry out their vicious abuse. This also marks the depth of Israel's sin. It is unfathomable that a man would offer his daughter or his lover in this way. And it is important for each of us to hear that this text does not defend this evil. The old man tries to justify it by saying he's trying to protect his guest by the laws of hospitality, but Scripture does not defend that justification. In fact, Scripture repeatedly calls the righteous to give extra protection to the vulnerable. And the clear message of this text is that such a self-protecting, self-gratifying move on behalf of these men is another sign of the depth of Israel's sin as the characters try to respond to wickedness without any moral compass other than what seems best to get them out of the situation in the moment, leading only to further evil. As a side note here, We've repeatedly said that Judges describes an increasing downward spiral of greater and greater wickedness throughout the book. And one way for us to trace the decline in Judges is to trace the leadership and the care that men in the story give to women. In Judges chapter 1, when things started well, we saw Othniel courageously lead the attack against kiriath Sefer in order to win the hand of Aksa, the godly daughter of Caleb, and secure an inheritance for them and their family. But things were much less good with Gideon, who did win a battle and protect God's people, but then amassed many wives and concubines, creating conflict and disobedience to the Lord and his family. Things got even worse in Judges 11 when Jephthah sacrificed his own daughter, even if it was with her consent, to win God's help. In Judges 14-16, to things descended even worse as they described Samson's lust, prostitution, and anger that led his wife to be burned alive by a Philistine mob. And here it is at its worst, as the old man and the Levite throw the woman that they are biblically charged to care for and protect to the wolves in order to protect themselves. In other words, we can see the moral and spiritual decline of this nation by tracing the failure of these men to protect those that God had given to their care. And so it is worth challenging men here, husbands, fathers, young men, Your treatment of women, your willingness to love, to protect, to provide with godly leadership and sacrificial care for those God has entrusted to you will be a key marker of your own heart, but also of the spiritual state of our church and our community. And this decline marks the decline into greater depth of sin. Well, then the text highlights the depth of Israel's sinfulness in one more way through an intentional parallel between what happens here and what happened in Genesis 19. You may remember Genesis 19 and the story of Lot and the angels who visit him in Sodom and the details of that story that played out so similarly to what happens here. 
Scripture frequently talks about Sodom as a height, an exemplar of depravity. And so for the narrator of this story to draw a specific comparison between Gibeah and Sodom is to say, Israel, do you see what has happened? You have descended into such wickedness that you, God's people who had God's law and God's word, have become as evil as Sodom. Again, do not let the absence of a statement like, and this was wicked in the sight of the Lord, fool you. Everything about this story frames it as wicked. Verse 1 frames the story as another negative example of what happens when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And the narrator lets the wickedness of what happens here sit in front of our eyes, creating dismay and outrage. If there is any doubt as to what God thinks of these events, all we would have to do is turn to Hosea chapter 9, verse 9, and Hosea 10, verse 9, where twice in 20 verses, Gibeah is held up as the standard of wickedness, a role we often saw Sodom play. Israel is told that they should expect war to overtake them for their injustice like it did Gibeah, for they have corrupted themselves as they did in the days of Gibeah. So this story intentionally highlights both the breadth of Israel's sin and the depth of Israel's sin in the days of the judges. But even if, Israel, if, this, if Scripture does condemn this sin, it leaves us with a significant question, doesn't it? Where was God in this story? How could God let this kind of thing happen? How do we think about God's presence in the face of this kind of wickedness? In his striking novel, Orbiting Jupiter, Gary Schmidt describes the suffering of 15-year-old Joseph, who was abused by his father, bounced around this foster care system, spent time in juvenile prison, and watched his girlfriend die at age 13. When Joseph comes to live with Jack, he attends Christmas Eve service with their family, and hears the Christmas story for the first time. After the service... He goes up to Reverend Ballou and says, I don't believe that angels actually exist. Reverend Ballou asks why, and Joseph said, if angels were real, bad things wouldn't happen. Reverend Ballou responds and says, well, maybe angels aren't there to stop bad things from happening, but to be with us when we go through them. Joseph looks at him and says, then where were they? A few days later, Joseph dies because of his father's rash folly. And Reverend Ballou, overcome with grief and anger, cries out, Where were the angels? It's not a very good theological response, but it is the cry of our heart, isn't it? When we see wickedness and the suffering that it causes. But we need to turn to Scripture and see how Scripture answers this question. And Scripture, when this question confronts our hearts, I think reminds us of three things that we need to remember. First, we need to remember that God is not the cause of sin and suffering. Sin is the cause of suffering and wickedness. James 1.13 reminds us that God does not lead anyone to sin. In fact, sin flourishes when God and his word are rejected. You might notice, actually, if you were to read Judges carefully, that Judges 19 is the only chapter in this book where the Lord is never mentioned once. 
Wickedness flourishes when the Lord is absent and his word is ignored. The moment Adam and Eve rejected God and did what was evil in their own eyes, their sin began to snowball in humanity and in all creation from relational conflict to hatred to murder. Of course, every one of us is born on sin's team. We add our sin to the mix. We contribute to the sufferings of others, whether it's in little ways, with conflict and hurt, or in great ways through our sin. Which is why I think, though we ought to fight against injustice however we can, Scripture challenges us in the face of suffering to look at our own hearts. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 13? When Jesus' disciples came and told him about the suffering of some Galileans who were unjustly slaughtered by Pilate and their blood was mixed in the sacrifices, Jesus does not dwell on their suffering but says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now that might sound callous. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was not ignoring the injustice that these victims suffered, nor was he ignoring the unjust atrocities of Pilate. Rather, Jesus views this life as a preparation for eternity. He views the sufferings of this life as just a foretaste of what we all will suffer apart from Christ, apart from God's presence. If we arrive before the judgment throne of God, standing on our own, deserving God's wrath. And so we need to remember that all suffering and wickedness is caused by sin and that we ourselves deserve a suffering and, and punishment that this life will only be a foretaste of if we arrive before God's throne on our own. And this should make us realize the desperate need we have of a Savior. But the second thing God's Word calls us to remember is that God is perfectly just and does not turn a blind eye to evil. See, the guilt of all mankind does not erase the fact that some have committed particular and egregious wickedness. And God promises to mete out full justice against every evil. There will not be a single violation of any human being that will not receive the full weight of God's justice. Of course, we want to see that justice immediately. And sometimes we do see consequences come in this life, as we'll see in the next chapter next week. But Scripture never promises us that we will see God's perfect justice in this life. Rather, Scripture consistently promises that perfect justice will come on the last day. Maybe you might remember Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, the psalmist is struggling with injustice that's committed that doesn't seem to be punished. He says, in fact, I was envious of the arrogant. Violence covers them as a garment, but the wicked are always at ease. That's what it feels like in this life sometimes, doesn't it? But then the psalmist goes on. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. See, in this life, those who suffer wickedness against them are like the victims awaiting the day of trial, which the judge has set, and it will come, because every evil and all wickedness awaits the day which is coming when everyone will stand before the judgment seat of God and God's justice will be perfectly 
vindicated. So we need to remember the promise of God's perfect justice against evil and those committed. Then third, Scripture calls us in the face of suffering and evil to remember the character of God, which we can trust. We may not know why God allows this suffering. There are, not, there are answers we do not get in this life. But there are answers we can rule out because of God's character. God is neither ignorant nor powerless against evil. He is perfectly sovereign over all things. He is the one before whom not a hair can fall from our head, nor a sparrow fall out of the sky, apart from his knowledge and his will. Nor is God failing to meet his promises in his word. See, God in his word tells us again and again and again that in this life we will suffer and evil will still have sway in this world. Think of what Jesus said in John 16, 33. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Nor can we say that God lacks care or keeps suffering at arm's length or is callous to our suffering. We dare not say that because our God refused to let us wallow in the consequences of our sin, but loved us so much that He sent His own Son into the world to endure the weight of the wickedness of earth and the full extent of His own wrath for our sake. To redeem His creation and His people with such a great salvation that on the last day, everyone who trusts in Jesus who repents and turns to him will find every single tear wiped from their eyes. Death and mourning and crying and pain and all the former things will be wiped away and all things will be made new as we dwell with our God, drinking from the waters of life, basking in his love and his presence and his righteousness forever. That's the promise of Revelation 21. See, Scripture is not silent on suffering. Scripture does not present some happy facade of how everything will be cheerful every moment if we just look to Jesus. It says in this life we will face the depth of evil. But whether it is the book of Job or the book of Habakkuk or passages like Romans 8, Scripture always brings us back to the character of God who is sovereign, who is just, who is good and who has endured through his own son the fullest suffering for us that justice and salvation and final joy will be ours if we trust in him. These truths may not give us every answer we want, but as Tim Keller has said, it gives us the answers we need to trust him and live for him through whatever he sends our way. Well, let me conclude with one more comment. What should we go away thinking and feeling after reading a chapter like this? Two things. First, a story like this should renew our hatred of sin and Satan and evil. It should encourage us to oppose and to pray against sin and evil wherever we see it in the world around us. It should also encourage us to oppose and to pray against sin wherever we see it in our own hearts. Because our sin takes the side of evil and contributes to the suffering of those around us too. And I think the psalmist gives us the perfect example of how we're to pray and think and feel in Psalm 139. In verses 19 through 24, he writes this, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! 
Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And isn't that what we feel when we read a story like Judges 19? But then the psalmist goes on immediately after that verse and says, And search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So that is our prayer. To hate and pray against evil and wickedness in Satan's work in the world, but also to pray that God would show us any sin and evil in our own hearts and lead us in the way everlasting. And finally, a story like this should make us long for Christ and our heavenly home with him. You know what it's like to be on one of those vacations that goes wrong, right? You know, the cabin leaks, you can hear mice scurrying while you're trying to sleep, The attraction you'd planned to visit is closed for maintenance. And then the stomach bug hits with a vengeance. We've all been there, right? And what do we feel? The the more things go downhill, the more we just want to go home. We want to be in our own beds to sleep. We want to rest where it's safe. And in a similar way, the darker the sin and the evil and the suffering of this life, the more our hearts long for and look forward to that day when we will come home to be with our Savior. I imagine a godly Israelite reading Judges 19 and weeping at what God's people had become, longing for a king in Israel who would reconcile them to God and lead them in repentance and righteousness before the Lord. Of course, that's just what we found in Jesus who came as that king. And you remember Jesus' words that we read earlier in this service from John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it, were not told, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that you may be where I am also. That's the hope offered through Christ. If you do not know Jesus Christ this morning, if you've not personally trusted your heart to him, come to him and find rest and hope for your souls. And if you do know him, then in the face of the remaining darkness that's still around us, rest in him and find in him the guaranteed hope that awaits that final day of both justice and salvation. It's just around the corner. It's coming in his time, and it's all that we need. Let's pray. Father, oh, may we come to a passage like this, and yes, be horrified at evil and wickedness, and grieve at the suffering of those that it hurts. But oh, Father, may it drive us to the cross of Jesus Christ. May it humble our hearts and make us eager to pray against, yes, the wickedness of the world around us, but also the wickedness of our own hearts. And may it cause us to run to Christ, our refuge, our strength, and our hope as the one that we need, the hope for final salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.